Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer. I'm joined by my colleague, Paul Rickard. Hi, Paul. Hi, Peter. I've just been thinking about that introduction by the wonderful Dave Gibson, who was the man who used to work with Doug Mulray in the old days and created characters like Gloria, like Jack Africa, Bogdan the Turnip Boy... <laughs> Were you young enough to remember Doug Mulray? I certainly remember Doug Mulray. Um, I guess probably the time you were with Doug Mulray was the last time we had a recession, or was that <laughs> you, you? It was, yeah. I was, still, I was still at Triple M in the early 1990s. Eventually went to Mix 106.5 to work with Mike Carlton when he came back from the UK. And that didn't last long. Not for you, but for him, no, I don't I lasted longer than Mike did, i got to say. Well, the problem for Mike was he came back with a very English accent. Yeah. Didn't he? Because he, he was great on, on impersonations. Like I, I think his Friday News Review mm-hmm. was a was, highlight. It uh, was one of the best uh, pieces of radio this country's ever produced. But he did come back with an English accent, which a lot of people found a little bit hard. So he eventually um, drifted to the ABC and he, he kind of lost his English accent over time. Now, talking about recessions. Yes. Well, back to the show. We'll, we'll get to the show, Peter. Yes. Back, back, on, back on, um, on brief. Yes, yes the, your little link was <laughs> me. Triple M and I gave, I, I gave you a nice segue. Uh, you and did. You just, you, you I thought I'd turn into something more entertaining. Uh, now, by the way, so what we're going to do is talk to Ryan Felsman. Ryan is um, uh, the, the the boy wonder. If Craig um, if Craig James is Batman, Ryan Felsman would be boy wonder. Uh, Robin and he went when Craig's away. Ryan jumped in the breach and is a good economist in his own right. So we thought, we let's put out all the questions that people are scared about. Are you scared about recession? Are you scared about stock markets falling? Are you scared about the economy not coming back? House prices and all that sort of thing. We thought the right hell. There's a lot of scary talk, but that seems pretty normal these days. I was watching um, Insiders yesterday where they've got, of course, they've got fill-ins and Fran Kelly is the the current fill-in at the moment. Okay, yeah. Of course, with her Radio National background and... And she likes a good scare. She does, and, she, she, and, and she interviewed. <laughs> I like uh, she likes a good scare, and she yeah. interviewed Matthias Corman as though that the he's scary. Uh, he can be scary, <laughs> but as though that last week's growth figure of 05 percent was just shocking. You know, this was this was a re- it was. Well, Fran was terrorised. Well, Frank was Fran was terrorised about the recession we're going to have, and oh, this is uh, really it was really quite. No, a, but that's, her problem is that she watches the ABC, yeah, and that's where you get that kind of information. Well, uh, I, I didn't point out that 0.5% if you annualise it is actually 2%, yeah. <laughs> which is a lot higher than most economies. But, exactly. Uh, That's look, what the Yanks did. They take 0.5 and multiply it by 4. But it is hard just to work out what's going on in the economy, and that's why I think Ryan might have some good insights there. Yeah, correct. And I, I look, I've been watching the data, and it's progressively getting better, but it's not getting f- better as fast as people would like. But economies do not recover quickly, Paul. That's one of the, the great lessons I've picked up over the years. I remember when Amanda Vanstone was uh, Employment Minister, mm-hmm. and we, you, your political memory is better than me, but Howard was voted in 1996. The recession ended in 1991, 
and the economy was growing, but jobs weren't coming. And I remember her comparing herself to an old farmer waiting for the rain to come to see the drought break. So those jobs didn't really come till 1997. So an economy can really, really be slow in delivering what you want. And I think the other thing, Peter, is we do um, underestimate the impact of federal elections on the economy. Yeah. And this one in particular, when you think back and you think of some of the very, uh, you know, I would say at least scary policies we had from um, Bill Shorten and his team, mm. um, there are a lot of reasons why investors and others sat on sat on their fingers sat yep. on, sat on them and did nothing. Yep. And uh, employers are also uh, unwilling to invest. So I think we sort of, the June quarter at 0.5%, in, given it had the election not to go through, it may yeah. not be that bad. So yeah. well, let's hope so. Yeah, because I, I was actually saying this could be the short and slow down. Uh, and look, 0.5 is not great, but I'll be interested to see what Ryan Felsman thinks um, or CBA is saying about that. All right, so that's, that's the first part of the show. Then we're going to talk to Hiroki Takauchi. I hope my Japanese is good. He's the uh, founder of a company called Go Cardless. That's not a bad idea. Imagine just going your whole life with no car. Well, I think it's for it's probably more for businesses, Peter, but uh, great for – let's find out what Go Cardless is. But yeah, it sounds that's, good. That's the point of the show, yep. to find out what our guests have to say. And then finally, we're going to do a repeat of something that was on our, our um, property show last week, our very first property show, which a lot of people might not have seen. Over 10,000 have actually viewed it so far. This is Martin North. He's the guy who went on 60 Minutes and talked about a possible 40% fall in house prices. I then actually started you know, discussing the fact that he might be wrong. I then attracted a whole lot of people who thought I was wrong and they've been terrorising me ever since. But I'm still gracious enough to bring Martin on the program to see what he's saying now. About. Apart from you being gracious, Peter, I think it's actually a really good interview. So, uh, <laughs> Thanks for, yeah, you don't give me very much praise. So no, I'm, I'm not I'll gonna, take I'm, that I'll, as a good interview. Take, take that as a yeah. Take that as a compliment. <laughs> okay. Without any further ado, let's introduce Ryan Felsman, senior economist at Comsec. Ryan Felsman, thanks for joining us on the Switzer Show. Absolute pleasure, Peter and Paul. All right, so, Ryan, I guess the question I keep getting from lots of my uh, listeners, viewers, readers, and clients is how worried should we be about a recession coming down the pike in the second half of this year? Well, our view is that we think that household consumption will actually pick up on the back of those interest rate cuts from the Reserve Bank. We're expecting a third one in November, and also at the same time, there's also around $7 billion worth of tax offsets, which will hit individuals' bank accounts in the next month or so. So in relation to that, we're already seeing a pickup in the property sector as well. So with that combined wealth effect, we're expecting household consumption to pick up on the back of that and to combined with infrastructure spending, elevated public demand, and also modest increases in business investment to provide some support for the Australian economy in the second half of this year. So our view is that we don't expect to see two quarters of negative economic growth anytime soon. Ryan, a lot of the commentators last week focused on the annualised rate of growth of 1.4% rather than the quarterly growth rate of 0.5%. Now, do you see that uh, quarterly number going up in the coming quarters? In other words, the economy starting to, the annual rate will go back above 1.4%? Look, our expectation is that into the third quarter, we should see a boost in gross domestic product, probably in the vicinity of 0.6, perhaps even up to 0.8%. I 
on the back of those tax cuts, which we think will boost retail spending and also broadly household consumption as well. So we think that that boost will be concentrated in the third quarter. So the expectation, of course, is that boost will lift growth. At the same time, we still expect export volumes to remain quite healthy. We have seen iron ore prices come back a little bit, but of course there has been Chinese stimulus announced, particularly on the weekend around the cutting of reserve requirement ratios in China and that easing of credit conditions one would think would lead to an increase in infrastructure spending in particular. Ryan, if, for example, a trade deal was had over October, do you think yes. the Reserve Bank, and of course that would be a surprise to most of us, but you know, with Donald Trump, you've got to expect the unexpected. Um, <laughs> if a, a trade deal was had, do you think the Reserve Bank might hold back on a cup day cut on the basis that a lot of the problems of the world economy seem to be linked to the hesitancy for, of businesses to invest because of the trade deal problem? Absolutely. So that is a risk to our view around interest rates being cut in November. Certainly if a trade deal is struck between the United States and China, we'd certainly expect to see market sentiment, particularly in equity markets, pick up. At the same time, we'd also expect to see a continuation of some buoyancy around certainly the property market in particular. People will be, I guess, looking to move their money. There's that search for yield that's continuing. Property is an, an area where people are focused on at the moment with record low interest rates in terms of deposits at very low levels. So broadly, that pick up in terms of sentiment specifically around the global growth backdrop would be very, very uh, welcomed as far as businesses are concerned, particularly with their confidence being hampered by this uncertainty. And Ryan, I'm just trying to get an understanding of how important do you think a trade deal is for the stock market? Some uh, commentators like my colleague here have said the market could go up by, I think, t- at least 10%, Peter, was yeah, what it, yeah, some numbers out there. And, yeah. and there are others, obviously, have said more. What's uh, Comstock's view about that and uh, particularly, you know, the market and uh, just how sort of primed are people for a trade deal actually happening? And be 100% accurate as well, Ryan, okay? <laughs> Look, our view is that the ASX 200 will reach 6,800 by year end. That was our view at the beginning of the year. So we're a little bit of, of a way off that. We did sort of touch those levels or at least just lower than that recently, a few months ago, near record highs. But of course... Markets have come back a little bit on the back of that resurgence or reintensification of the trade war. But certainly at the same time, there's a lot of focus on the earnings results here in Australia, which were quite mixed. And we have seen business profitability under a bit of pressure with the slowing in the real economy. So we think that if there was to be a trade deal announced, certainly would see a significant pickup. And if we did see at the same time, hypothetically, the Reserve Bank looking to continue to ease, uh, that that would double lift would, would really sort of propel markets higher. I'm trying to work out why our economy really fell into a hole, Ryan. And when I start trying to piece it together, I, I have the implications of the Royal Commission and APRA on lending, for starters. I have the pre-election period, um, some of the controversial policies of Labor, um, for negative gearing, capital gains, franking credits, and also wages for, for small business. Uh, also, a change of Prime Minister. Are all these things, do you think, 
reasonably important for explaining why our economy you know, did fall into a hole over the last six to nine months? I think so. If, if you look at a couple of things. So firstly, on the consumer side of the equation, as you mentioned quite rightly, wages growth has picked up to four-year highs, annualised 2.3% nationally, but compared to the last decade, wages growth is still fairly modest. So households have been a bit more cautious around their spending on the back of that. We have seen a little bit of a lift in unemployment in recent months, particularly after February. So the unemployment rate did get down at eight-year lows at 4.95%, and job hiring has remained quite buoyant, about 300 uh, 23,000 jobs have been created over the last 12 months, and unemployment rates in New South Wales and Victoria are below 5%. So that's acted as a support, but we have seen that tick up in the unemployment rate, particularly with leading indicators of jobs growth moderating somewhat, uh, lead to a little bit more discretionary caution from consumers around retail spending in particular. So household consumption, 1.4% annualised, as Paul mentioned, that is the weaker since 2013, so that's acting as a bit of a break given that 60% of gross domestic product. I'd also add that the property downturn up until recently, dwelling investment down about 9% year on year, that's kind of impacted as well. And that's also reflected in retail spending with consumers less desired to spend on household goods. So I think they're the two main ones, and along with business investment, the uncertainty leading up to the federal election combined with the trade war uncertainty business investment down by 1.6%. So businesses have been less inclined to spend on capital and equipment in this environment. So Ryan, when I used to teach economics, I often used to um, encourage my classes to understand post hoc propter hoc, which of course is Latin (laughs) for, and I used to then convert to Australian. If A happens before B, A doesn't necessarily cause B. Um, Correct. All right. Now, but one thing I want to test out my post hoc propter hoc um, uh, theory on is um, the trade war has been going about 18 months, right? Yes. And we've had 19 trade surpluses in a row. That's right. Is there a link between Donald Trump and our improved trade outlook? Well, I think certainly the Chinese look to stimulate their economy, and we saw that back in April. So with the trade war slowing the Chinese economy, particularly in advance of some milestones, of course, the Communist Party is celebrating 70 years being in charge of the country in October, so they've been quite keen to keep their growth target of around 6% on an even keel. So we did see some instances where that growth rate had decelerated or at least close to that level. Growth is at 27-year lows. And what we did see back in April was a concerted effort to stimulate. And we saw a pickup in infrastructure spending combined with the Tailing Dams tragedy in Brazil. We saw some of that seaborne iron ore supply offline from Brazil. So, of course, Australia was a beneficiary of that as well. So, really combined, we've still seen reasonably strong Chinese demand. They've been directing their demand to places like Australia around America, of course, one of the Outcomes of the trade war is that China's looked to other countries to source their goods and services, and we've been a beneficiary not only when it comes to bulk commodities like coal and iron ore, but also high quality agricultural produce as well. So, over the course of the last 12 months, we've seen a 16% lift in demand for agricultural produce to about $12 billion. So, things like beef has been in strong demand. We've had the African swine flu epidemic that's 
ravaged the Chinese pork herd, or the, mm. the hog herd, I should say, for affecting their staple diet of pork. And beef exports have been really lifting on the back of that from Australia. So that's really driven, combined with commodity prices rising, uh, those trade surpluses. And of course, we've had our first current account surplus in uh, 44 years. So, uh, so really, that, that's been a, a positive development. So, Ryan, let's, let's pick up on the 19 um, successive uh, trade surpluses. And as you said, the first current account surplus in 44 years. I never had the benefit of. Uh, of Mr. Switzer and his uh, brilliant, e- economics, brilliant teaching. economics teaching. But in the dark old days of the 80s, I remember when we had a, a current account deficit we, uh, we and we had the warnings about the Banana Republic all largely based on the so-called current account deficit and we had a plummeting Aussie dollar. I just want to pick up sort of where we are now with the Australian dollar. It's It's been coming now off over the last 12 to 18 months. But given all the good news around on the trade front, do you think we're getting sort of starting to find a bit of a, a bottoming to develop there or is your forecast still for a bit more weakness? Look, we're forecasting the Aussie dollar to remain around these levels of 67 to 68 cents in the next three or four months. And that's largely on the back of expectations that the US Federal Reserve and the United States will look to cut interest rates. Of course, the president is applying a lot of pressure on the independent Federal Reserve at present, but we have seen some evidence of a little bit of a loss of momentum in the US economy. It's now growing at 2%, which is pretty healthy. There's no sign of a recession there. But of course, business investment in the United States did fall in the previous quarter down by 0.6%, which is the weakest outcome in three years because of the trade war. So there has been a desire to support the US economy. So we think the Federal Reserve will look to cut rates in a week or two's time. Uh, so of course, that, that interest rate differential between Australia and the US will uh, I guess, contract a little bit. So that'll provide a level of support for the Aussie dollar. And also at the same time, Chinese stimulus as well uh, will provide uh, another level of support. The other thing to note with the current account surplus, what it suggests as well is that the Aussie dollar uh, potentially is a little bit stronger than you'd think otherwise. Mm. So uh, really, uh, that is a support for the Aussie dollar at the moment. So it is it, it has fallen about 4% over the last 12 months and isn't far off decade lows. But of course, the upside of that, it's, it's a shock absorber in a, in a slowing economy or at least a global environment, and it, it makes our exports more attractive from an overseas perspective. So uh, that's quite a positive outcome. Yeah, and, and I guess the, the one last thing I'd like to talk to you about is, you know, part of the big problem with Australia, even during the Banana Republic here of the 80s, was, you know, we weren't great savers we had lots of stuff to develop, so we had to borrow overseas, which left us very vulnerable. Explained why we had to have heaps of foreign investment coming to the country and 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 debt, you know, uh, loans coming in. But uh, in recent times, the flows seem to be going the other way. Like we seem to be giving a lot of money to the overseas via superannuation. Has this kind of surprised you? There's been like a, 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 a benefit of superannuation funds that invest overseas? Well, that's right. I mean, if, if you look at what's happening as far as those flows are concerned, certainly what we have seen as far as concept clients are, are concerned is a, an increased appetite to diversify, not only away from Australia, but just in terms of asset classes more broadly. Of course, that search for yield is in place at the moment. And global equities do provide an attractive proposition, despite the fact that there are some 
worries about global growth at the moment. So what we have seen in particular from Comsec clients broadly is a desire to invest in technology-focused companies and in particular the NASDAQ sector. So despite the fact they're at quite lofty valuations and quite expensive, our clients are still looking for those growthier names and, and certainly have been focused on that. So uh, really that, that could be part of the broader reason for some of those flows in particular, but also we have seen our government bond yields, while they're attractive in terms of the fact we're a AAA sovereign and our budget is broadly in surplus or at least in balance federally, of course, those yields have been diminishing with uh, with record low yields, particularly for the three and 10 years. So uh, investors have been quite savvy at the moment and, and looking to tactically allocate the position, their individual portfolios around the world to take advantage of some of those opportunities that may arise with the dislocation of markets. Okay, Ryan, thanks. I think all our listeners will be sleeping better after that very learned view on the subject of the economy. Thanks very much. Thanks, Peter and Paul. Appreciate it. Have a good day. Well, Paul, that was Ryan Felsman from Comsec, allaying a lot of people's fears when it comes to the economy going forward. Well, he did indeed, Peter, and that leads me to... um how you've allayed a lot of fears of it with your new book. Why don't mm. you... Um, nice link, Paul. Nice yeah, link. I'd worked hard on that as well, Peter. Why don't you tell us about your new book? Yeah. So I've created a book. It's probably more for young people than older people, but a lot of... So old... someone like me should be interested. Well, yes, right. <laughs> a lot of older people like you are actually buying it for their daughters like you. And they're actually asking me to write inside, please read this book so you won't go to mum and dad and ask for money. So in many ways, it's called Join the Rich Club. It's basically put together some of the the best ideas I have that a lot of people never learn because they just never dedicate themselves to actually learning about money. If you want to get rich, this is a real good start. And you can get the book at switzerstore.com.au, $24.95, fantastic reading. You couldn't buy a better way to get rich. My next guest is Hiroki Takauchi. He's the CEO and founder of GoCardless, a company that was started in Britain and is now here in Australia. Thanks for joining us, Hiroki. Thank you for having me. So tell us what GoCardless actually does. Sure. So at GoCardless, what we're doing is building the best way to collect recurring payments. So any anywhere where there's an ongoing relationship between the customer and the business, so things like subscription payments, you know, invoicing where you're invoicing a customer uh, on a recurring basis, uh, installments, that kind of thing. And uh, what we do is we build technology on top of direct debit systems around the world to make it really easy to collect those kind of payments. And so how do the uh, customers of the business uh, fit into this system? They just provide their bank account information? Yeah, so uh, exactly. So in much the same way that you might be used to making a e-commerce transaction using a credit card uh, where you put in your credit card Mm -hmm. details online, what we do is we provide technology that makes it really easy to uh, use your bank account details and set up a direct debit online uh, instead. Uh, And that's great for businesses where they have this kind of recurring business model because direct debit is is actually a much better way of collecting these kind of transactions. It's a a lot more reliable, it's cheaper. And so, you know, when, when you've got this kind of ongoing relationship with your customer, you know, you don't want to worry about, you know, credit card details expiring or people losing their cards and, you know, all of the failure that that comes with that. 
uh, and you know being able to take money directly from the bank account is, is far more reliable. So you know, we help businesses with, with with those kind of transactions. So, so what made you go out there and look for a better solution to the one where, for example, I know in our business we have the Switzer Report and people pay via credit cards and we know there are problems when the card expires and all that sort of stuff. What were the, the, sta- yeah. the standout reasons why you said, hey, maybe my go-cardless idea would be better? <laughs> well, we, we started out with, with a slightly different idea, although actually you know, it's caused the, the same problem that we're solving today, which is that you know, we, we so when I started the business, I, I was about two years out of university, so still relatively new in my career. And you know, one of the problems that I'd always always kind of noticed was that when you were trying to collect payment in more informal situations, so you know, say you're going on holiday with your friends, or you're captain of your local sports team, member of student society, that kind of thing, collecting payments in those kind of use cases was was really awkward. Um, and and so you know, initially we were trying to solve that problem and. You know, at the time, we didn't know anything about payments. We didn't, we didn't know how anything worked. But when we started looking into it, what we realized was that, you know, there was a lot of technology being built and services offered for businesses that wanted to do kind of e-commerce, right? So if you're selling a jumper or, you know, uh, uh, something online that's kind of a, a one transaction, then, you know, there's a lot of technology for that using credit and debit cards. But, but that, that solution was never going to work for, for the the problem that we had in mind and you know what we realized was that there were these other payment rails uh which existed all around the world um that no one was really building anything on top of and no one was really making it easy to use them and you know what we realized as we kind of went along and learned more about these payment systems was that actually we weren't the only ones that had that problem and you know a lot of businesses that have this challenge of trying to you know collect payment from their customers on an ongoing basis and so that that was kind of how we how we came across the, the idea in the first place. So, uh, what does the, the small business or the subscription business? What do they give their customer or get their customer to do when using your technology? Yeah, so I mean, it's you know very similar to the way that you would check out in any experience. So, you know, that what, what we typically find is our customers, which are the businesses, will you know send their customers a link or, you know, they'll put it on their website and there'll be a, a form where, you know, instead of putting your credit card number in, you're putting in your, your bank account details. Uh, and, you know, when you do that, then you're able to set up these kind of direct debit mandates and enable your customers to, to pay for your services directly from their bank account. And presumably it's easy for the customer to change that. Is, is that one of the propositions apart from potentially increased security? Yeah, so obviously, you know, uh, you're able to kind of cancel those uh, those kind of direct debits from, from your bank account. And, you know, there's generally a, a bit more visibility of, of what's going on, a bit more control as a result of that. So, yeah, absolutely, that, that's kind of part of the, the benefit of, of this way of doing things. Well, Hiroki, a lot of people are really loath to give details over the phone or filling out details that involves their credit card. Did you get pushback when you were asking people to give bank account details? Well, no, not really, actually, because what we find is that, you know, a lot of the time this is the way that people prefer to make these kind of transactions. So, you know, especially when there's this kind of ongoing relationship, you know, you, you pay your gas bill, you pay your, your 
credit uh, your credit card bill this way. So he, he, people are kind of used to paying for recurring things directly to their bank account. And uh, uh, you know we, we've done quite a lot of research in this space, and you know find that actually there's a, there's a preference for direct debit in, in most countries in the world, including Australia. And so, what's the payoff for the the um, business as such? What is the business? Because like, at the end of the day, they just want people to pay up. What is the, the big payoff for business? Yeah, so typically the big payoff is around the reliability, right? So, you know, you, you're, enab- you're enabling someone to collect payments using a, a far more reliable uh, pay- payment rails. And what that means is that, you know, instead of the typical kind of failure rate which you see on cards, which is, you know, somewhere around 10 to 15% every month, you know, with direct debit, you'll see a failure rate of more like two percent, uh, which is which is because you you know you don't have those expiry issues, you don't have the the, the, the people losing their credit cards, and so you know that 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 that's the, the kind of the biggest benefit. Um, the the other big benefit is you know a, a lot of the time what, what what we find is that businesses are moving to collecting this payment and this kind of a uh, an automated automated way of collecting payment for the first time. Um, and so, you know, uh, th- there's a big benefit around moving from quite manual mechan- mechanisms. So, for example, you know, there's that typical cycle of, you know, when you send your customer an invoice and then you wait for them to pay you manually to having more of an automated solution, then you can massively improve a business' cash flow, massively improve the amount of time that they're spending chasing their customers for payment. And so uh, there- there's a lot of uh, benefits to catching and automation as well. Okay, I guess one last question. A lot of people listening to this who who might not care about you know your business, but they'll be caring about the fact that you went from being like a bunch of guys wanting to split up some expenses to discovering a business idea like this, and then I think you you raised one hundred and twenty million dollars in venture capital funding. How did you go from being you know just a bunch of plonkers going on a holiday to actually creating a, a business as good as this? And I say it with great respect, Hiroki, by the way. I said a couple of plonkers. <laughs> no, no problem. No, you, I think you uh, you hit the nail on the head. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, uh, you know, there was definitely some luck involved along the way, but, you know, by and large, uh, what we found was that, you know, that, that core proposition of, you know, enabling businesses to collect payment via these direct debit mechanisms for the first time was one that really resonated with, uh, with, with businesses and, so, you know, in the, we started out in the early days uh, focused really on small business, and you know, that's where we saw all of our initial traction. Um, and, you know, a lot of that was through partnerships with accounting platforms uh, like Zero, where we have a really strong relationship and partnership with them. Um, but then as we kind of grew and, and uh, expanded, we started working with larger and larger organizations. And, you know, obviously, we, we started in, in the UK, as you said at the start, um, and so you know, we work with a lot of the, the kind of the big subscription businesses uh, over in Europe. Uh, but what we found is that you know, as we've gone further and further internationally, uh, we're we're seeing the same kind of pro- problems crop up in in all the countries that we go into, and in particular in, in Australia and in New Zealand, uh, we're seeing that it's a, it's a very similar payments market to the one in Europe, and so uh, we're, we're getting a really fantastic reception from our from our early, early efforts in, in Australia and New Zealand so far. Great stuff. Thanks for joining us on the program.
Thank you. So that was Hiroki Takeuchi, Paul. Do you think you can see our business using that with our Switzer report? Look, I'm sure I can, Peter. In fact, as I said, we've got lots of subscribers. And um, I say people don't really like credit cards and the problem they, they cause. So mm. I'm very interested to see what uh, Go Cardless has to offer in that regard. Yeah. Now, on that subject, and it's got totally nothing to do with that subject, we have a property show. Just in case for our listeners out there, it's on Tuesday nights. Our first show was last week. Uh, I think 10,000 people have gone, have gone and looked at the show so far. And for anyone who's interested in property, uh, if they're looking for tips on where to buy and all that sort of stuff, this is the perfect place to go. That's the ad for the property show over, Paul. Let's now introduce our final guest, Martin North. And this was an interview we did in the property show last week. And I asked Martin about his 40% call when it comes to the house prices of Australia, which he said were going to drop by a big 40%. Martin North from Digital Finance Analytics. Thanks for joining us on Switzer. Hello, Peter. How are you? Very good, mate. Now, you know, I, I can't run away from the, the question. I have to start off with this. You once predicted uh, a 40% fall in house prices. What's happened to that? And is it something that might come again? Yeah, it's a good question, Peter. And look, you know, the headline, of course, always belays the detail, which is that there were a number of different scenarios that I always ran. Yep. And uh, the 40% fall was predicated on a global crash mm. and that then coming over the top and basically hitting Australia. Um, frankly, that is still one of my scenarios. And if you look at what's happening with the trade uh, issues with the uh, China and the US, mm. if you look at Brexit, if you look at the slowdown in China. I mean, there's a whole long litany of things that I could talk to mm. in terms of, in the worst case, that is still out there. The mm. question, of course, how likely is it? And, um, you know, 70% of economists in the US are still predicting a, a recession next year in the US. So that is still a live scenario. It's not the only scenario that I've, I've run. And at the other end, you know, if in fact the RBA is right, and if in fact we don't get any of that international disruption, then uh, I've said and continue to say that there's still some potential upside for property prices. Not a lot, but a little. And I suspect the truth lies somewhere in between those two points. Mm insofar that there are a number of local negative indicators with regard to the economy. And uh, some of those are actually going counter to the recent news in terms of home price mm. movements. Were you surprised, and I've got to say, I am surprised how quickly um, the recovery has been in both Sydney and Melbourne uh, in auctions. Um, and as we've seen from CoreLogic today, house price rises as well. I thought that the, the scariness of the house price drop was such that buyers would be, you know, pretty, pretty um, worried for some time. Has this surprised you? Well, it's quite interesting. Of course, the property market is not one market, right? It's a series of micro markets. And I think it's very important to understand that there are some quite dramatic changes and differences across different elements in the market. You know, to give you one example, if you look at uh, houses in Cronulla, right, they're up 1.4% over the last 12 months. Units in the same postcode, they're down 8%, right? Um, if you go to Miranda, they're down 13.6% and the North Ride, they're down 30%. So the point is, there are definitely things going on differently in different locations. My read of the situation is that there are quite a few people coming into the market buying houses, particularly close into the main urban centres in Sydney and Melbourne. Some of those got cashed up 
couple of years ago when effectively they sold before the price uh, slides started. And some of those are people what I call up traders, so they're people buying up into the market. We also know that now as the spring season begins to start and we're going to see more people listing their properties, my research from my survey suggests that we're going to see more property investors still thinking of selling because there isn't the capital growth that they've seen before. Mm. And we also know that there are a lot of down traders, people with big properties looking to get out and release some equity who also want to list. So I think this is probably part of a bigger story, Peter, in terms of how this market is going to play out. But yeah, I think in some locations, prices have bounced more quickly than I expected. And um, I think we're going to see a little bit more of that. The question is, is this a bull trap or is this something more substantial? Mm. And I guess the argument will be it is a bull trap if the worst case in a national economic scenario comes to visit upon our shores? Well, that's the real dilemma, right? Because effectively, you know, if, if you look at the local economic data, you know, frankly, households are not spending, businesses are not investing, the or iron ore price has slid back from 120 US to about uh, 90. Um, it's government spending that's supporting the local economy. The GDP number out later in the week will be, I think, a low mm. one. So locally, we have a number of, you know, worrying issues, construction jobs, dropping uh, 100,000 probably by the end of the year, retail jobs dropping. So locally, we have a number of issues. But you're right. It's The question is, how significant are the risks from the international perspective? And I guess that has to come back to, you know, is Donald Trump going to really take this to the wire up to the, you know, the next election uh, and therefore push the, um, the US into recession? Will the Fed be able to turn the taps the other way and basically postpone it or not? And, you know, because if that happens, have no doubt, prices will fall. Right, now, Martin, I've never got personal with you, but I will because, you know, for the hell of it. Um, if you had, <laughs> I'm not sure what, what your family situation is, but if you had a daughter or son said to you, Dad, you know, should I go looking for houses at the moment in Sydney and Melbourne? Because as you pointed out, some places are down a lot. Is this a, still a good time for the house hunter to, to show up to auctions and to look around for, for bargains? Well, I think it depends on what type of buyer you are, Peter. If you are an owner-occupied um, person wanting to get into the property market and you need one property, somewhere to live, and you can do it without stretching yourself too much on, on the mortgage, and you, you, you can understand that you might risk uh, losing some capital by coming into the market at this stage, but because you want it for shelter, for somewhere to live, you know, for your family, um, because you want to own a, own a bit of Australia, it, it may be worthwhile thinking about it. If you're a property investor, I think it's much, much more tricky because, um, look, frankly, the property investment scenario that I'm looking at suggests that there really is not going to be the same significant capital growth that we had over the last decade, mm. that the economic costs of owning investment properties have changed because the rental streams are a lot weaker than they were. And certainly I would not be buying a new high rise or a new unit for investment purposes, specifically yeah. now because of course the issues about construction yeah. and defects and all of those things too. Yeah. So I think if you were an owner occupier and you were buying for the first time and you could uh, you know, justify without too much risk, it might be worth it. But look, the point I think we've got to come back to is this fundamental question. Is property fundamentally somewhere to live or is it an investment class? Is it an investment asset, right? Because I think people have got so used to thinking of investment uh, classes, including property. And, and frankly, I'm just concerned that we may have lost the plot a bit 
property is somewhere about somewhere to live predominantly. I okay, think. so one thing you've done, I think I, I first started noticing your work was around mortgage stress. What's what's yep. the latest readings you're getting on mortgage stress? Yeah, the story is not good, I'm afraid, Peter. So we've got well over one million households who are registering in mortgage stress, and that basically means that the income coming in is uh, not sufficient to cover all of the outgoing costs, including paying the mortgage. And um, unfortunately, the number arising, and it, you know, it started over in the West, uh, in, in Western Australia. And uh, for example, two years ago, uh, you know, there were a couple of postcodes over in the West that were really, really sick. Now, if you look at them today, they've gone even sicker. But I'm seeing some of those same trends now in some of the outer suburban areas in Sydney and Melbourne and, and in Brisbane. Uh, also up in the um, Queensland area as well, particularly in the, in the mining belt as well. So yeah, mortgage stress is real. And of course, if you look at mortgage defaults, which is the end outworking of mortgage stress, it probably takes two or three years to get to that. Defaults are higher than they've been for some time, higher in the West, mm. but also now building in New South Wales and Victoria too. And the reason for that is quite simple. Big mortgages, Incomes are flat in real terms, costs of living are rising, and many households don't have the amount of work that they would like, they're underemployed. Mm. And, uh, you know, my own sense on employment is it's going to weaken rather than actually strengthen. In other words, unemployment will rise, and that's going to put more pressure on households, more pressure on mortgage stress, and therefore more defaults. Now, Martin, I know you, you've confessed to me in the past that you're not an economist, which is a, a badge of honour, I guess, and on many, <laughs> in many areas. Uh, but the interesting thing about we economists, I, I know Steve Keenan has suffered the same problem, is that there can be structural changes in the economy going on. And every time I see your mortgage stress data, I, I go back to you know, the 80s when I was you know, living with 7.5% home loan interest rates, and I wonder what, and whether you've investigated this, that whether some of the mortgage stress we see nowadays is because family spending patterns structurally have changed. Like, for example, in the old days, I watched TV. I didn't have to pay for TV. Um, I didn't have credit cards the way I did. I didn't have a new car. I had a very old Tirana. I know mortgages are the main things we borrow, but are the other aspects of our life also making mortgage stress even worse because of the, the changing nature of the way we spend our money? And we didn't have mobile phone well, bills as well in those days. <laughs> yeah, and, and data and net streaming and all mm. the other stuff, right? No, there's, you, you're right. There are definitely some differences now compared with 20 or 30, 30 years ago. Um, but, you know, if you look at it carefully, the average proportion of income going to repay the mortgage for many people is still a lot higher than it was even way back then, right? And, and that is because the mortgage is a whole lot bigger than it was. And I know interest rates are very low, and that helps on the interest repayment front, but you still have to pay off the capital eventually as well. Um, and what happens quite often is that when people get into mortgage stress initially or when they get into financial difficulty, what they do is they reach for the credit card and then they get two or three or four credit cards. And, and so their overall footprint of debt goes up. And I think that's the most significant structural change that I've seen, which is that the amount of debt in the system against those households are way higher than it's ever been before. You know, everybody quotes the 200% the number, but remember that's the average of all households. Only one third of those are borrowing. And those, the average debt to income ratio is about six times, which is remarkably high. And so that's a structural difference. The other structural difference, of course, is that um, previously people had an expectation that incomes would grow, you know, more than just 
to cover the cost of inflation. But since 2008, according to the latest Hilda data and you know, other data too, there's been no real increase for most households in terms of real income. So that's the other factor that's structurally very important. So how come we've got a situation where we've got more debt, where we've got flat incomes, where we've got households beginning to struggle? The unemployment rate is the critical thing. If it stays low, fine. But if it starts to rise, boy, that's going to be a big issue. Yeah, the one last thing I'd like to throw at you, and I only got this data today, and I don't know whether you're across it, but um, wages increased 4.7% for the year, yet inflation was uh, 1.7%. So I've got effectively a 3% increase in real wages. Does that surprise you, Martin? Uh, I'm not sure. I haven't seen that particular number, mm. Peter, but that's certainly not the uh, the data that I'm seeing out of the uh, surveys that, that, that I run. I think mm. the problem, of course, there is you've got to look public sector private sector, you've got to look across different industries. There are many people now working in low-paid industries, for example, in healthcare, uh, in the healthcare sector and places like that, who've actually had quite big increases, for example, in Victoria quite recently, because of um, a, a settlement that was put in there. But that was a bit of a, a one-off blip. So yeah. let's watch what happens. I mean, if incomes really do start to rise in real terms, well above inflation, then that changes the game and maybe the RBA is right and maybe we'll get to 4.5% um, mm. unemployment, unemployment, unemployment and therefore maybe wages will really begin to take off. If that does, that will take the pressure off. Mm. That will then mean that home prices will rise. But I think it's a bit early to say for sure. Yeah. Well, Martin, it's always good to see that you're not a one-trick pony, that everything you say <laughs> is scary and Armageddonsville. I know for a fact that you do have alternative scenarios. I thank you for sharing them with me on the program tonight. Good to talk to you, Peter. And as you say, you know, I take a range of views. And by the way, I'm a philosopher by nature, not an economist, but that just makes me ask the why question, which is always a good one yeah, to without ask. Without a doubt. Martin North from Digital Finance Analytics, thanks for joining us. Well, that's the show, Paul. Are you still worried about 40% house price? No, I, I'm not. And I'm looking forward to the next edition of the property show on, uh, goes out on Tuesday night. Of course, on Monday nights, we have our shares show, Peter, which is even better, mm. some might say. Is that because you're on it? <laughs> Well, I'm going to be on both How this week, I think. How yourself are you, Ricard? <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. Uh, Anyhow, look, uh, Monday and Tuesday nights, yeah. uh, it comes out about 7 o'clock. Yeah. You go to uh, the YouTube channel on, uh, just go to YouTube and yeah. uh, search on The Switzer Show. Yep, Switzer TV, Switzer Finance, it all comes up. That's the show for this week. Talk to you next week. Time. Time. Mm.